Welcome to Que Pasa HSIs, a podcast dedicated to everything Hispanic serving institutions. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia, bringing you the news on what's happening in HSIs. Join us as we explore the history and evolution of HSIs, culturally relevant and liberatory practices, current and emerging research with HSIs, and the policies that shape servingness. Saludos, HSI familia, and welcome back to the show. Today, we're talking to Doctors Luis Le- Dr. Luis Leva, newly promoted associate professor with tenure in the Department of Teaching and Learning at Vanderbilt University, Peabody College of Education and Human Development, where he serves as director of the Power, Resistance, and Identity in STEM Education, or PRISM, Research Lab. He's joined by his colleagues from Sonoma State University, Dr. Omaira Ortega, who's an associate professor of mathematics and statistics, and Ronimad Lopez Pasan, who is a first-generation non-binary Chicane and recent mathematics graduate from Sonoma State. Drs. Leva and Ortega are co-PIs on an NSF HSI grant to improve undergraduate teaching in HSI STEM departments, and Ronnie works as a student researcher on the TIPS research project. So thank you all for taking your time to be here today on Get Basa HSIs, where we talk about all things HSIs. To get us started, we always like to hear first about y'all's journey into and through higher education. So let's go ahead and start with that. Omaira, you want to kick us off? Sure thing. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Garcia, for having us here today. Um, I'm very excited to tell you about my higher education journey. Uh, I was always a nerd as a child. I loved school. Uh, I didn't necessarily know, always know what the next steps were going to be, but I always enjoyed going to school. It was sort of an escape for me. I grew up in uh, Queens, New York, and so very busy, bustling, cacophonous city. And so going to school, like I said, was an escape for me. I started in New York City public schools um, and then uh, applied for a program called Prep for Prep 9 that takes students from public New York City public schools and, and the New York City area in general. And they go through a, about a year and a half of training and then go to preparatory schools, go to boarding schools in New England. And so I spent my high school time at Milton Academy in Boston. And so very much a PWI uh, that institution. <laughs> and it was a bit of a shock going there, but at the same time, like I said, school has always been an escape for me. It really just seemed like we had a slumber party all day and we're also going to school together. So um, I enjoyed that. And I think because of that preparation in that school, uh, I I was encouraged to apply to a lot of colleges that I'd literally never heard of before. Like I, I didn't even know what Princeton was. I was encouraged to apply there. But I, I ended up, um, thankfully, at Pomona College in Southern California. And um I was there for about four years, but I will say that uh, a pivotal a pivotal moment for me while at Pomona was after my freshman year. I was just having too much fun. I had way too much fun, and it wasn't that I wasn't capable. It's just that I preferred hanging out with my friends, and I didn't go to classes. I actually failed Calc two. I failed calculus. I'm a mathematician. I teach calculus all the time. But so I spent a year at De Anza Junior College, uh, just getting my act together and reflecting on what I really wanted out of my education. And I did well, went back to Pomona, graduated from Pomona, and then went to grad school in Iowa, of all places, the University of Iowa, uh, mainly because I felt like I got the East Coast down, I got the West Coast down. Let's see what's going on in the middle. And there's not a lot. 
I mean, I love Iowa. I absolutely love it. Um, but it was a great place for me to get my PhD. And so I got my degree in applied mathematics and computational sciences there. Uh, my focus is really on mathematical epidemiology. And so after getting my PhD, I went and got my first job at Arizona State University, where I was for nine years. But honestly, um, the R1 environment really isn't for me. And so I actually left academia for two years and I was working as a consultant, which was a very lucrative position, but also not as fulfilling as being an educator. And so um, during that time, I was still working with summer REUs and just missed students so much that I ended up um, taking a visiting position at Pomona College, where I went to school for one year and then applying for tenure track jobs. And then I ended up at Sonoma State University, where I am now. So um, I grew up in this small town called Sonoma Valley. And I was recommended into this program called AVID. I don't know if y'all are familiar with it. It's just a program to help students um, think about college, think about certain classes and like, you know, build them up for success. So from like, what, seventh grade, I already was thinking about college. And I stayed into AVID until like my senior year of high school. And thankfully at AVID, I got all the necessary resources and they required us to have like a minimum amount of colleges applied to. Um, and after all of that, I ended up at Cinema State, which I really enjoyed. And interestingly enough, I entered as a sociology major. Um, and I, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I thought sociology was cool. But then I took Calc 2. <laughs> and I was like, you know, math is kind of cool. So I know it's so funny that you said you failed Calculus 2, because that, that's what made me a math major <laughs> at Sonoma State. Um, I was also part of the Puerta program at Sonoma State, which isn't a thing anymore. But um, it was a program organized to support Latin students to become future educators. So I was like, you know what, with this math degree, let's become a teacher. Like I can I can teach people. And um, so, yeah, I started in 2018. It was interesting because in 2017 was like the wildfire season of, of NorCal. So during a majority of my time at Sonoma State, we had to do a lot with like the power outages, the wildfires. So it was kind of like a rocky um, journey. And then obviously the pandemic happened in 2020 and the quarantine. So um, during that time, I took a year off. Um, and honestly, I didn't think I was going to come back to school because um, I don't come from a lot of money. I did uh, My housing situation wasn't the greatest. Um, but thankfully, um, my mentor helped me like raise money. I was able to get an apartment near um, Cinema State. And I just graduated recently, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah, I... I I'm just a recent graduate. I don't know what, what else to say besides, you know, um, I think it's pretty cool. I was able to finally finish my bachelor's after, you know, a tough time. But yeah, we're here. <laughs> yes, I love it. Awesome. And I like the connection between calculus too. Luis, you're going to come in and tell us something about calculus too? You going to thread the story? <laughs> I think so. Uh <laughs> Let's see. So I, um, my story is I was raised by two immigrant parents from Cuba. And so during that, my upbringing education was really hammered home as a big value. So like going to college was like, there was no questions about it, but I think part of it with my upbringing was like, what was I going to become with the college degree? And one of the things that I really valued was my mother's relationship with my pediatrician um, and the support that he provided. His name was the, uh, Dr. Segundo Perez. And I remember, you know, just the ethic of care that he would bring to those interactions of me going to the doctor's office. 
And so that's really what's inspired me to think about, you know, math and science, right? Um, and so going in, I did my undergraduate degree at Rutgers. Um, I was originally pursuing a chemistry major and um, calculus too was actually the one that really kind of played a role of seeing myself more as a math person, quote unquote, because I was being, I was somewhat successful in that space. Um, and it's also one of the classes you could choose among them and, you know, you could choose calculus too, to be able to continue on to be a chemistry major, to go on to be, to do other STEM areas. So that was really affirming for me. Um, but during that time, you know, thinking about my own identities at the intersections of also my queer identity, like I was thinking a lot about my social aspects of my lived reality, not just my academics. And so that, and also that I was being apprenticed into thinking about, um, you know, working in student affairs at Rutgers too. So a, lot, a big role for me was um, get being involved with STEM living learning communities, working for the Upward Bound program, summer program for a number of years, and really thinking about like how social aspects of who you are and your experiences also intersect and collide with academic experiences. So unfortunately, I did not ultimately end up being a chemistry major or becoming a pediatrician or being pre-med, but I fell in love with teaching and learning in mathematics. And to become um, licensed as a teacher, you have to major in the content area that you're going to teach. So that's what uh, routed me to mathematics. But then in my research, so when I finished up my, my undergrad degree and I finished my master's degree to become a mathematics teacher, I had a career pivot where I didn't want to necessarily only, um, I wanted to continue doing classroom teaching, but I also wanted to engage in more of uh, educational research to understand these lived realities of, of, of social aspects coming into play in STEM teaching and learning and mathematics teaching and learning in particular. When I was in grad school, I wasn't finding a whole lot of solutions um, around an intersectional understanding of issues. A lot of the times when I would look at math education research, it was really kind of single dimension focused. And it was actually my connection with Dr. Abelia Hernandez at, um, at Rutgers in an office appointment, uh, office hour appointment with Abelia, where she introduced me to this idea of intersectionality. And I'll, never, I'll always be so grateful for her to be able to kind of uh, point me in that direction. And I started digging into hooks. I started digging into Crenshaw. I started digging into, you know, Black feminist epistemologies and women of color feminisms to understand this more. Um, and so I think that that was a really crucial turning point in terms of my educational research trajectory. So my work, my dissertation was um, really uncovering the intersectionality of lived experiences in mathematics for historically marginalized students. And then that ultimately became my program of research. And then later on going off to pursue my first tenure track position after grad school at Vanderbilt University. Um, so that's my, my higher ed trajectory. And I tried to do due diligence to keep calculus two threads alive there. <laughs> it was perfect. I love the, I love the connections. And now we know who to thank Dr. Abelia Hernandez for your intersectional critical approach to the study of mathematics. I love it. I like. I, I look forward to hearing more about that, which I know we're going to get into. Um, but before we talk a little bit about that, uh, the second question I like guests to talk about is the servingness journey. Um, how did you come to understand Hispanic servant institutions? And this one is always interesting when 
you didn't mention HSI as your undergraduate um, experience, which many people don't. Um, even if they're at an HSI, they don't necessarily know they're at an HSI. So I'd like to know at what point did HSIs come into your consciousness um, or what I call the serving journey? Tell us, tell us about that. So Ronnie, you want to kick us off? So it's, I really like this question because I mean, when I was applying to colleges, um, it wasn't like a big thing for me, but I did like seeing that um, some schools were recognized as HSIs. Um, and when I get got to Sonoma State, it's not as diverse as I was anticipating it to be since it was recognized as a Hispanic serving institute. And I know I'm not alone when I say that, as I have uh, spoken with a lot of like classmates. And um, actually, my first year there was the first year Sonoma State was recognized as a Hispanic serving institute. So I was like, oh, that, that's exciting. Like, what are we doing for Hispanic Heritage Month, like what's going on? Nothing. Like, I don't know why, but there was nothing. And I was like, and I was like talking to my friends, like, well, how are we recognized as a Hispanic Serving Institute, but we're not celebrating our culture? Like, what is this? And then, as I mentioned before, as part of Puerta, and um, because of my active involvement with that program, I was offered a position as a promotore, um, which is just doing outreach, um, helping create um, events. And a lot of it was based on just creating community and creating presence at school that was um, sincerely lacking. And I really enjoyed doing the work there because I got to, um, you know, play an active role of just creating um, the space that I wanted to feel wanted my homies to feel included, you know, wanted us to feel represented. And like, there's one event that we created, like was like the Pulga Social, and we had like vendors around and we had like, um, you know, like elotes and like fruta picada and whatnot, you know, just like, you know, creating presence. And um, there was still, um, as even though we had like culture represented on campus, there was still like a lack, I felt in like instructional support for my, for my homies. And I, I guess, and um, I don't know. So th that was the lack that I was kind of like, you know, like, why, why is there no support? I mean, Puerta did have um, advisors and I loved my advisor, Alma, but um, I felt like they were limited into how much they can support us because uh, they had like, not a lot of funding, but, you know, they did what they could. And um, I also did Baile Flocorico my first year. Uh, and what I really appreciated from Puerta is that Baile Flocorica also did not have any money. Uh, we barely could afford the dresses. And we also wanted to perform for Raza. But the Green Music Center, the venue where Raza Grad was going to be held, um, told us we could not wear our shoes because, uh, you know, they want they didn't want us to damage their floors. And while I understand that, it's very unfortunate because, like, um, Baile Flocorico, you need the shoes, you need to hear the feet, you need to hear us dancing to the rhythm. It's literally part, like, integrated into our performance. And we were, like, very devastated because we were confused on how we were going to, you know, do a good job of, you know, showing our, our, our love for our culture, but also not removing its core substance. And thankfully, Berta came through with, with some of their funding that they had and bought us some, like, wooden floorboard so we would able to like cover the floor and still use and um thankfully we were able to use that for the practice um studio that we also um used and um I don't know there were parts here and there that were Puerta that was really able to come through um but even then I still question like how else can we support students um 
And so if you were to tell me like 2018, that was going to be part of this really cool research project, I wouldn't have believed you. I wouldn't have even known that this project was going to be a thing like five years later. So I'm just really excited to be here and also be a student assistant. I, I just think this is overall a really cool opportunity. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you for sharing. I love the servingness journey when it involves anything cultural, right? And that you created that space. That's an important part of servingness. That the students are actually often creating the spaces. Um, but when the university comes in and supports as well, I like that you had that support as well. Cause that's kind of like my push always. I'm like, we can't expect students to support themselves, right? Like we have that's our role, right? In the university. So so yeah, yeah. thanks. I wanted to add one more thing. Mm -hmm. uh, also, I also worked as a summer bridge leader for Sonoma State as part of the Puerto program. Summer bridge is kind of like a transit, trans, transition like program for students who are just um, starting college. And because it's part of Puerta and EOP is for specifically first gen students. So I was able to like help students, um, first gen Latin students, um, get their feet in the ground, get um, situated with the campus and, you know, do those like cringy, but, you know, fun icebreakers and getting to know one another. And then after that summer, I also became a, a peer mentor for my cohort and supported them during the whole first year transition into campus. So like little things like that was really cool because um, that was other support, like other forms of support. I felt like Porta and Sonoma State did a good job of, um, you know, help making sure we have that sense of community on campus. For sure. Thank you. Luis, you want to come in and tell us your story? I always say I do HSI work from the widest institution in the country, but yours might be wider. So I, I don't know. We could debate. <laughs> so tell me about serving this. <laughs> so I think my story of like how serving this came into my consciousness. So when I was a PhD student, doing my dissertation work and I was sharing around being at Rutgers and trying to really understand intersectionality of experiences. Um, a big part of my dissertation was working alongside Latin identified engineering students and trying to document specifically their math teaching and learning experiences as aspiring engineers. And so a big part of like the theorizing that I was doing through my research really centered Latin identities for and its intersectional complexities around gender and other vectors of identity and power, right? Um, and so I, when I began to share that work, um, and I, I think it was probably at the joint mathematics meetings where I was able to work with an undergraduate research assistant, um, Alexandria Cervantes, who was in California, and then got to spend a whole summer working alongside our research team, digging into some of this, this dissertation work data we got to share it at the joint mathematics meetings. It's the largest gathering of mathematicians. And it was there that I believe that I was able to connect with Ben Ford, who's also part of our project. And then I got to meet who became like family members to me at Sonoma State, who are the leadership team um, for the TIPS project. And so a large body of my work early on as a scholar, really centered around Latin experiences, but it was in a historically white campus perspective. So I was beginning to get curious about how is it that a broader institutional space with the cult, like a commitment to fostering culturally enhancing forms of commitment broadly, how does this then kind of play out for Latin STEM majors? And then it, when I began to start thinking about this and I received this invitation from the leadership team, 
to be welcome into being able to be thought partners about doing this, it was an opportunity to say, okay, well, how do we take stock on what's happening in undergraduate math classroom spaces, but how do we also take account of this through an institutional lens at an HSI? So that, that was my trajectory of how HSI came to be in my thinking. Awesome. Thank you. Omara, you want to jump in? Sure, sure. I love listening to Luis talk. You have such a way with words. Um, I'm say, uh, for me, uh, the HSI designation was not really on my radar for a very long time, even though I taught at an HSI when I was at Arizona State. That was my first job. I was there for a long time. Um, and I felt even the way that I learned about HSI was very it was directly tied to funding. It was like an NSF designation. It wasn't necessarily, I mean, even if you'd like take apart the word, I'm like Hispanic, like I don't even really like that word. And then serving sort of, what does that mean? Shouldn't it just be Hispanic enrolling institutions? I was confused by it, but I understood that it was a source of funding. That's how I came to know HSIs. And so I'm really glad now to be at Sonoma State where people are thinking about the serving in Hispanic serving institution. And so, um, I mean, really, I, I didn't, I didn't know about HSI. I knew about HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities coming from the East coast, even though I, I learned that much later in life, just having been a student at primarily white institutions all of my life, with the exception of New York city public schools at the start of my life, I really just didn't get that education about what that meant about how that changes the culture of an institution or how it should change the culture of an institution once you um, have that designation, once you formally receive that designation. Um, I will say just in my day-to-day, I think about how my own servingness comes to play out at my institutions. And I will say that at just about every institution I've ever worked at, I've been the only, if not you know, one of two Latinas professors, I mean, students, even as a student, I remember in my undergrad institution being the only woman, the only Latina, the only Afro-Latina. And so um, I think that I feel internally the need for institutions to embrace that servingness. And so I'm really thankful to be a part of this TIPS project. I'll talk more about that later, but just this, this group that I get to work with. I love, I love these people and I love working with them. I love uh, what did you say? We're like thought thought partners. I love that's what I, I love the way Louise talks. I love being thought partners with these people working on servingness at Sonoma State and more broadly across the discipline. Yes, you just basically y'all in many ways summed up HSI, right? Like a lot of people, it doesn't come into consciousness for folks until until it does, right? Like until you get a grant or until you have to actually start thinking about it, right? And you're like, oh, this is a thing. Um, but here at Get Pasa HSIs and in many spaces I run in, we are making meaning of HSI, right? Which is the cool thing that y'all are part of the movement. I'm part of the movement. We're part of this like movement to make HSI and serving this um, actually a thing, right? Um, and I love that y'all are doing it in math. So we are going to step into math serving this I think it's such an important topic. Um, we're going to start with some of your uh, research, Dr. Leva, because you're doing such really cool, interesting intersectional work that centers the voices of historically marginalized student populations in undergraduate mathematics and STEM higher education broadly. Um, ex- you're exploring the intersectionality of educational experiences specific to race, gender, and sexuality. 
This research can obviously inform mathematics education for Latine, Black women, and queer students at HSIs. And I hope it does. I hope folks that are listening um, are ready to start taking notes, right? Because you you definitely, I think, have some, some good things to share with us. So talk to us um, about these ideas of whiteness and cis-heteropatriarchy in mathematics, which you've written about. Um, what does it look like and how can faculty at HSIs identify it and disrupt it? Big questions, um, and thank you for the affirmations, y'all. Um, I think I will start with, when we think about structures of whiteness and cis-heteropatriarchy, the way I'm going to answer this is like in two parts, which is around like ideologies, but also like pra practices. So from an ideological standpoint, I think that those two systems of power that overlap um, bring us to conceive of not just mathematics, but STEM broadly as being this very colorblind, it's irrelevant about your social experiences or your lived identities. And even though this is true with varying extents in STEM, mathematics is a unique space because it values this notion of abstractness, this notion of theory that oftentimes positions it as being divorced from social things because it's all about the abstractions and the, and, the, and the logics behind it. And so there's opportunities for that to be wielded in really violent ways when we think about somebody innately being more mathematically competent and even troubling this notion of being the math person or having the math gene. When that gets collided with social inequities of who has access to develop into being mathematically competent who has been positioned by virtue of who's represented in advanced mathematics as being deemed as a math person or not. And you see those constructions of math ability being racialized and gendered in all these other exclusionary ways, right? And so I think that that's the ideological piece. Um, and then when you think about this in practice, behavioral norms in mathematics learning are encoded with um, like really heteronormative and patriarchal and racialized ways of thinking about how you can show up in a space. So for example, if you're more argumentative, it's valued because argumentation is valued in mathematics or this idea about like kind of jockeying, like how much you know in a space might be valued because of those hierarchies of knowing more or less. I want to stick with the argumentation piece because that notion of like, questioning others' authority is white-normed forms of behavior. It's also coded in masculine forms of behavior. So then when you think about intersectionality, right? And let's say you're a more masculine-presenting woman of color in a space, let's say a Latin woman who presents more masculine in a space, we think about all these intersectional tropes that come into play that mathematics tells you to show up and be assertive, we value that in the space. But whose assertiveness is valued in this space when you're learning mathematics? Because there's a there's a risk that's being run here when you're presenting yourself in this more assertive way and holding that social position of being deemed an angry black woman or being, you know, someone who's difficult to work with in mathematical spaces. So this becomes the question of we value these certain things that are entrenched in racialized and gendered ways and cis heteropatriarchal ways that we construe what's valued as normative behaviors in math learning, but for who is the question. I am with Dr. Ortega. I could listen to you all day. 
Like I just have so many ideas of like, oh my gosh, like how are we going to disrupt this, right? Because um, part of this is the 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 teaching practices, right? It's pedagogy, right? Like people are going to actually have to approach their teaching differently based on what you're saying, right? Which I assume that's that's the the recommendations you part of it, right? That you're making um, in your research. I just realized that you had a second part to that question, which is how do we help HSI faculty to identify and disrupt it? So so I'll address that point too. So, you know, I, so it's not specifically a recommended practice, but maybe a guiding question of how HSI faculty in mathematics are thinking about this is when you look at your practice in what ways do you, do you see your practice being engaged in barely like, um, disconscious, so not race conscious ways of teaching and learning. So when you think about what are the needs and experiences of your Latin students to navigate mathematical spaces, like who's had access prior to college to develop their mathematical foundation, who's had opportunities for students to nurture themselves and thinking about themselves as mathematically competent, how do those questions then frame how you approach your instruction? And then that argumentation piece, who's taking up space in your classroom? So when you think about whose voices are heard in your classroom, what does that say about the opportunities of who gets to take up space in your classrooms in an HSI context? Who has access to office hour visits? Are though, you know, if you're thinking about students who maybe are working jobs while they're also going to school, how are those support structures also attending to the needs specifically for our Latina identified students to access that support outside of the classroom. And I think when you think about all of this, there's a danger of doing this from a deficit-based perspective of like, I'm doing all these other kinds of practices to address some kind of a gap or a need that's a deficit orientation. We need to approach this equity-minded work from an asset-based perspective of what are Latin students bringing in to mathematical spaces and how can I really allow them to flourish in those, in those ways. Absolutely. Which I assume is what y'all are doing with your projects. So we'll get to that. Right. Cause I'm like, now I just want to know more, right? Like how do you, how do you get faculty on board? Right. With the, you have to be able to identify that, right. That that's even happening. Faculty don't even know what deficit looks like sometimes. Right. Um, because it's so normed, right. To, to be deficit, unfortunately, um, particularly against uh, students of color. So Thank you um, for that. Another question I wanted to ask you was about this idea of querying STEM disciplines, right? You've done some work um, around that, including uh, querying engineering, um, which I think couples really well with season one guests, uh, Dr. Yolanda Cataño and Dr. Angel de Jesus Gonzalez. They came on the show and talked about querying HSIs overall. And you're talking about, well, how do we queer, right, STEM spaces, math spaces, engineering spaces. So tell us about that, um, about that concept. And and what, again, what does this look like in an HSI STEM space? Totally. So I think about the queering concept, again, in two ways. So one is about, like, how do we queer conceptions of what's valued in, let's say, engineering spaces or STEM spaces? which again is not oftentimes tied to social aspects. So when, over the years when I've been interviewing students about what really motivates them to want to pursue STEM majors and in some of my recent work alongside queer and trained students of color in STEM at HSIs and other types of institutions, many of them talk about having a, a commitment of advancing ju- social justice through their STEM work. But when you look at the curriculum in math and engineering and other STEM areas, 
that those curricular opportunities don't necessarily nurture that justice commitment that they bring to want to pursue STEM. So with queering is how do we queer conceptions of what we really value and how do we prepare in teaching and learning spaces for students to kind of feel like their cups have been full or are being uh, filled to be able to pursue these justice oriented commitments to doing STEM. The second piece that really kind of synergizes with some of our past guests on the podcast around queering HSIs in a community college context, in their work, I really appreciated one of the recommendations that they made in that piece about um, professional learning spaces and LGBTQ services, because they make an argument around HSIs in community college spaces that oftentimes if you're in an LGBTQ space, we're just attending to your queer and trans identities in a non-intersectional way. When you're in a Latin affirming space or affinity space, we're only thinking about race and ethnicity and we're not thinking about some intersectional complexities. And this is nice synergy with some of the things that I've been seeing in my work because um, when students talk about affinity spaces or campus organization spaces that are tied to missions around STEM representation. So for example, like let's say a Society of Hispanic and Professional Engineers chapter on campus, many of these organizational spaces are oftentimes also similarly designed in ways that only account for one vector of your social identity and not being at the intersections. And so I'll give one example in a piece um, that was presented at the our, our, our North American chapter for the Psychology of um, Mathematics Engineering Conference. And so during that time, I got to share uh, in a plenary address about looking at specifically Latin queer and trans students experiences in STEM. And one of the themes that came up was the nature of peer relationships. And one of the, um, the, the big themes that came there was these culturally medi- mediated understandings of gender and cult- uh, gender and sexuality in Latin culture and how that figures into how students were being able to form or not form supportive relationships with peers. And so oftentimes, and in, in one of the participants, Ross, in that particular analysis, shared about, as a person who's gender fluid, I'm going into women in engineering spaces where I, you know, they, they were feeling like an imposter when they were in that space because it mainly catered for cisgender women. And then when they were in the ship space, and this is all for a student who was at an HSI, when they were at an, a ship space, they felt as though some of these kind of um, narrow understandings of what it means to truly be an upstanding person with gender identities, these kind of cis heteronormative understandings that are tied oftentimes to, to Latin culture when we think about machismo, for example, that this allowed opportunities for Rose to be able to bring their queerness. So I say all of that because in addition to queering what we value in STEM, we also have to queer our designs for STEM student support spaces And we have to really begin to think about how do we design supports to be intersectional by nature as a, and so that way we kind of get away from the siloing effect, right? The answer is not have all of these different, we're supposed to have all of our different counter spaces and they're really important, but it's not, people can reduce this to say like, oh, well, we just need to have one space for queer people of color in STEM, right? And then that's how we, but we can actually do a lot more with the existing structures that we have if we just think about these things from an intersectional lens. I kind of wanted to add on to that as mm-hmm. a non-binary student at Sonoma State or graduate at Sonoma State. Um, as much as I'm excited of the work we're doing with the TIDS project and everything, and um, I do feel like there's a lack of 
understanding of intersectionality from a lot of professors at Sonoma State. And then my personal experiences as well, my other trans uh, friends' experiences have not been the greatest uh, when it comes to being served because it comes with a lot of misgendering. And thankfully, PeopleSoft, the software we use um, for Sonoma State, allows us to use our, our preferred names instead of legal names. So um, we haven't really had an issue with dead naming, but there is like a very lack of understanding of how to serve queer Latin students, not just Latin students. Um, so um, me and my and my friends have been having this issue of like how to navigate th- these spaces as queer queer Latin people. So like Luis, thank you so much for your work, and I really hope um, tips we can like really move this towards more intersectional intersectional approaches. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Thank you for jumping in. Like, we need to hear that. Like, and the folks that are listening need to hear, right? Like that, like, we need to do better because it really is. It's faculty need to do better, right? Like we can read all the research. We can listen to all the podcasts. But the reality is when you are in that classroom space, like you got to do it. You, You can't be misgendering people. You can't be, you know, just using inappropriate terms, dead naming people like that. That's that's us. Right. That's us as faculty. We got we got to do better. So. So thank you. Um, and we're going we're going to keep pushing um, because that's the reality is we we it, this work has to be intersectional. There's no other way. So let's um, talk. We keep hearing about the TIPS project, but we haven't heard about the TIPS project. So let, let's, I want to talk about it. <laughs> Doctors Ortega and Leva, you are co-PIs um, on an NSF HSI grant that includes STEM faculty learning and professional development and a co-researcher model, including student researchers such as Rani. Let's talk about it. Dr. Ortega, how is the grant expanding faculty learning opportunities at Sonoma State in mathematics and across STEM departments on campus? Um, and in what ways are dimensions of being incorporated. Mm-hmm. So let me tell you a little bit about TIPS. Um, TIPS is an acronym that stands for Transform- Transformational Inclusion in Post-Secondary Education. And this is a two-year pathway. TIPS is a, a two-year pathway that is specific for departments. We want whole departments to engage in this work so that you're working with your colleagues and so that we can change the culture And we definitely need to have a critical mass of people participating to really have this work be sustained in departments and actually be effective. And so uh, what happens during these two years, um, there's a lot of professional development, a lot of faculty learning research, um, and a focus on lesson study as well. Uh, It starts in the summer. And over that first summer, there is a professional development, a week-long professional development workshop um, that's led by our professional development team, which includes Dr. Aris Winger from Georgia Gwinnett College, Rochelle Gutierrez from University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, Shimena Sid from Cal State Dominguez Hills. Um, And so uh, in this professional development, faculty learn during this first summer just about, you know, who are we engaging in our classes? What exactly is going on in our classrooms? We can't just stand at the front of the board and just deliver material and just sort of like regurgitate this information that we've been given, but how are we actually connecting with our students and empowering them to learn? And then also taking a closer look at what's happening in our classroom, what what we are allowing to happen in our classroom. You know, are we engaging only with a particular type of student? Are we only interested in students that come well prepared to class? Um, Are we only calling on students who raise their hand? Are we not trying to engage our quieter, shyer students? 
um, which oftentimes, and my experience at Sonoma State, end up being Latina students that tend to be quieter in my classroom. So how are we engaging with our students? How are we fostering a sense of belonging? And we spend a lot of time during this that first summer um, having some really deep and uncomfortable conversations about what's going on in our classrooms and, you know, you know, of course, with every conversation, having to set up a set of, of rules for engagement because uh, we want people to feel comfortable enough to share how they're feeling, what their opinions are. And we don't want, you know, if there's someone that needs work, say they don't even know what an HSI is, <laughs> what that means, what serving this means, then we don't want to attack folks for doing that. So we have to, during that first sem- summer, develop just a sense of community and and comfort in in having this discussion at all. And so uh, one example of what we talk about during this first summer is just, again, the engagement with the students, but how do we do that? And so we developed a practice of check-ins. Each individual had to come up with, um, how do you check in with your students? Uh, Is it, you know, just once a semester? Is it you know, twice, is it twice a semester? Is it a survey? I personally, I check in with my students once a week and it's a verbal thing because I I also want to get my students talking. That's a way to gauge how my students are feeling. And I have to share too, so they get to know me better, but it's, it's just a way to engage the students in, um, in a way that isn't high stakes. It's not a test. (laughs) I just want to know how you're doing. Um, And just that simple act of letting a student know that you care can mean so much to them and bring them to your classroom, make them more interested in actually hearing what you have to say, what their classmates have to say, and the material that you're covering in that class. Um, So that first summer uh, professional development workshop really sets the tone. There's also a lot of anonymous padlets, just in case there's things that you are very uncomfortable saying in front of your colleagues, because there is also, you know, that difference of junior colleagues versus more senior colleagues, or just, you know, do you have tenure yet? There's a lot of I mean, we're all academics. There's a lot of departmental politics sometimes. So there are opportunities for anonymous conversations as well. Um, And then in the winter, we have our second, um, a bit more in-depth professional development workshop where we talk about culturally responsive pedagogies. Um, We talk about embracing our Hispanic servingness, um, our designation as a Hispanic serving institution. And we work uh, very closely with Dr. Rochelle Gutierrez uh, on her rehumanizing STEM framework. And so it the first, uh, we started with just a pilot of the math department. So we focused on that rehumanizing math framework. And it's a framework really just for identifying, you know, sort of what Dr. Leva was talking about earlier. What are we, you know, rather than taking the deficit mindset, looking for what are the, the talents and the gifts from our Latin, our Latine students that we are not we're not cherishing, that we're not using and supporting in our classrooms. And how is that, you know, how are we missing out as as faculty members, as just as mathematicians in general, by not engaging with our students, with our Latine students especially? Um, Then after the winter professional development workshop, we focus on lesson study. And so this is, we get into even smaller groups of maybe five faculty members who are teaching the same class, um, and we identified gateway courses that are that have high DFW rates or high opportunity gaps um, and focus on those courses in small groups and try to apply these, you know, culturally responsive, culturally enhancing pedagogies that we've learned, as well as the framework, the rehumanizing mathematics framework in our classrooms. And 
we collectively in our small groups create one or more lesson plans that espouse these new skills that we've just learned. And then we also, we deliver them and the other people in the group are observers. And so in this way, there's this exchange of ideas. And also, I mean, how often do you have someone observing your class where it's it's not for your promotion and tenure? It's really just for you to become a better educator, for you to enhance your servingness as part of the HSI designation. And so uh, the lesson study continues for the next year and a half, but then there are still sort of um, catch up or, or just check in, I guess, professional development workshops that happen along the way as well. In particular, um, there's one that we titled Identifying Institutional Barriers and Opportunities, which has been really eye-opening for me personally. Um, we brainstorm as a big group, as a department, you know, what, what do we want to focus on? And I had um, the opportunity of joining the Financial Aid Task Force. It's amazing to me that students even make it through college. Some, the financial aid process is so convoluted and confusing. And, uh, you know, I recently learned it, that they only give you your financial aid materials by email and in English only. And so I think that's something that is changing at Sonoma State within the next year as a result of the work that we've been doing with the TIPS uh, grant. And so we're, we're very proud of that. But it was it's just really interesting to hear the perspectives of folks who are not in mathematics, who are not in, you know, working in the HSI sphere, just how they think about, well, you know, English, it's the official language of this country. Why would we, why would we ever send out materials in Spanish? And I just, I didn't even know what to say back to that when I heard it the first time. It took me a moment. I collected myself and I came back. But um, I just thought that was so interesting. When we serve such a high proportion of Latina students, why wouldn't our materials also be offered in Spanish? Especially something so important as this funding that's going to support your college career that could change your life. That's, that's very important. Um, so I said, I was on the financial aid uh, task force that looked at financial aid, but we also were looking at departmental policies, RTP policies that uh, affect our students um, as well as um, Ronnie had mentioned that there really weren't a lot of cultural activities on campus that were Latina affirming even though we're an HSI. Um, and so the math department has tried to do activities at the intersection of math and, um, you know, Latinx culture. And so like during the uh, Hispanic Heritage Month, we um, highlighted faculty, staff, alumni that were Latine. And we, it was essentially a social media blast. And um, that was, that came out of that committee as well. In general, also, we've been looking at reducing costs to students because we know that school can be quite expensive. And um, this semester, they focused on uh, free online um, homework submission tools because in the in mathematics, you know, we often have large classes. It's hard to grade all of that. And so we often use these online homework submission tools. And there are free ones available, but you have to create all of your own problem sets, which is a, a daunting task. And so there's a task force looking at that as well. But all in all, um, the TIPS project is always looking, I mean, we have we have our pathway, it's set, but also I was taking notes as Ronnie was talking because I we don't yet look at this, um, the intersection of, you know, the queer Latina students and how we can serve, uh, you know, our students. So um, 
I'm, you know, just so proud to be a part of this project. And like I said, we started with the math department. It has expanded to all STEM departments at Sonoma State. And the hope is that in years to come, we can expand to all of the California State University system, which is a huge system. It's the, you know, the largest, um, we educate, you know, the largest percentage of Latina students in the country, uh, as well as, you know, the CSUs, the system itself is the, it's, we are the biggest uh, producer of uh, folks who are, you know, changing social classes, social and economic classes. So um, we're very excited about these next few moves now as we we close out the pilot and we are trying to expand. Thank you for that overview. I have so many uh, more questions, but, you know, we don't have enough time. I'm like, oh, I love it. I mean, I think for me, um, the power of it is that you're changing people's mindsets. Like I'm at this point with HSI and Serena said, that's, you know, we want the organization to change, but like you have to change the mindsets of people within the organization, right? Because the organization is reflective of the people within it. So if you got folks who are not willing to change or not willing to engage in these, uh, you know, more critical ways of approaching, uh, uh, you know, the teaching of mathematics or STEM in general, uh, you're not going to change, right? Like the changing of mindsets is actually a really important um, uh, piece, which it sounds like what you're doing, right? You're really helping people to to really think differently. Um, so yeah, I love it. Roni, yeah. you want to talk to us? Oh yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, it's it's interesting because initially we thought we just had we, the, the unit of treatment is the department. And I think our original plan as we wrote this grant, as we wrote the grant proposal was just to focus on the faculty. And Mm -hmm. as we're working through this project, we realize, but our students interact with staff so much. Mm -hmm. And and, and talking about financial aid, every aspect of the university Mm -hmm. participate. The unit of treatment really is the entire university. (laughs) And so it's just been really eye-opening to see how much work there is to be done. But at the same time, I will say in in working with all of the STEM departments in my university, it's, it gives me hope to know that people are willing to engage in this work and are willing to, because it's, it's hard work to willing to put Mm. in the energy and the effort to do this. Mm -hmm. That hard work part, that's real right there. Um, yeah, I talk about that in my new book. I'm like, I actually used to implement a Title V grant. And I'm like, I thought it was easier to go get a PhD than like to implement this Title V grant because it's hard work, right? Like, and I like left that job because it it is, it's hard. And the unit of analysis really should be the organization. Um, so I love to hear you say that because HSI initially, when I got into this research, it was like student graduation rates was the only reflection of serviness. And it's like, student graduation rates are are not the most reflective of the organization, actually. They're reflective of students. Um, you know, you run it in a, in a statistical model and it's going to tell us students' income, students' mothers' education, right? Like things like mothers' education comes out in like an, in a, you know, statistical model of whether or not students are going to graduate from college. Um, not that faculty are, are, are thinking different or approaching, you know, uh, they're teaching different. So, so yeah, it really is the unit of analysis, the entire organization um, or the unit of change, right? So thank you for that. Roni, you want to tell us about your experience as a student on the project and what you're learning? Yeah, for sure. So um, again, I'm just like really excited to be here and also just work with tips. But um, I initially joined last summer 
and it was like a good time too because it was just after a whole year of data collecting um, for the TIPS project. So that summer, I was able to get into the transcripts and, uh, you know, code and talk, um, join the research meetings and talk about like sort of overall, overall lapping themes we have seen. And from there, go into depths about like, okay, what's the intersectionality lens? What's the whiteness lens? And what's, um, what's this narrative of shy Latina that keeps coming up? And like other key things that I've seen in this research is that like white professors are scared to talk about race, which is obviously not surprising. But um, from what I've seen is that the reason they're so scared to talk about race is uh, they're scared to stereotype students. They're like, well, I don't know how to talk about this without putting my students into boxes. And with this, they also say when we ask them, how do you how does serviness come into you? How does serving this show up in your instruction? They usually say, well, I don't know how to serve Latin students because I'm not Latin. And when we talk about these racialized questions and stuff, um, professors always lean towards um, gender, ex gendered experiences, um, being first generation, or some, some um, uh, faculty participants have even talked about like, oh, I'm really excited about this research and what findings um, that's going to be coming out of this. And like, they just lean to what's more comfortable instead of, you know, as we said, doing the hard work of what it means to unlearn these biases, unlearn whiteness, unlearn, you know, these, um, these social conditioning conditionings that have been normalized in our society for so long. And for those in, um, faculty participants that have been, you know, somewhat informed and know what it means, somewhat means to serve Latin students. Um, from what I've read, some of them tend to come off as white saviors, which has been really uncomfortable and frustrating because, you know, I love the passion. I love the energy. I, I love the fact that, you know, you're here doing the work, but we don't need your help. We just, you know, we want to be, you know, we want to flourish. Like, and what what can we do to work together to make sure everyone flourishes in these um, environments? So, um, yeah, I don't know. It's been really cool to be part of this research team and like find that you know professors are doing the work because honestly, if I wasn't part of this research team, this is a lot of like work that's behind the scenes. This is stuff students don't see, um, and it's so interesting being you know a student assistant because I talk to my friends. And I have a friend who's um, who unfortunately wasn't able to pass their math class due to like work and, you know, and a lot of like, um, you know, social barriers um, and just hearing their experiences with their math professor has been so disheartening to me because, you know, uh, obviously work has been the biggest thing that didn't allow them to succeed in this class. And when the professor told them, well, I don't know how much I can help you. You don't show up to class. And it's like. I don't know who this professor is, but like at the same time, it's like I, I try to like um, let my friend know like, hey, this is not a reflective of the whole department. Just know that we are here doing the work. We are here to support you. Like if you need help talking with this professor, like let me know. But they initially just are going to retake the class. But it, it's just interesting to see these like um, interactions with professors and students and like the disconnect where um, I see servingness not being you know, implemented in the instruction. So as you can see, I'm really passionate about this topic, but yeah, um, it's just a really um, unique and interesting experience to be, you know, on both sides. Yes. Thank you for sharing. 
And I'm just sitting here thinking, are you are you going to graduate school? Did you get the research bug? Are you going <laughs> to keep doing this work? I do, I do have the research bug, but I mm. also am very passionate about being an educator as well. Um, I want to be a high school math teacher, a bilingual math teacher. Um, so I'm really hoping to do get the bilingual authorization. Um, just because, you know, um, growing up, I had to do like the translation for my parents for the parent teacher conference. Mm-hmm or you know there was like that one translator that had to run around all around school to make sure they can like help students and stuff so I mean um, when we talk about like we want professors to show or you know educators to tell their students they care like I want to be one of those professors and like how Almeida said like as long as you ask are you doing okay like how are you like on a personal level that goes so so far like Mm -hmm. For most of us, I, um, higher ed being like, historically marginalized, it's like, whoa, you, <laughs> this seems a little sad, but it's like, well, you actually care about me. Like you care me, about me as a student, mm. you don't see me as, a, as uh, like someone who you have to grade and get perfect scores and all that stuff. So the fact that there is this embedded um, work of, you know, creating relationships and creating community, like that's my thing. I love creating community wherever I go. I'm like, you know what? I want to make sure you are seen, you are heard, and like we're in this together. So as a future educator, I really hope to like create this like inviting but also brave learning environment for my students. Cause you know, math is scary. Like you don't have to tell me math is scary. I still can't believe I graduated mathematics, not gonna lie. <laughs> but it is scary. And hopefully, you know, I'm just one person, but I'm brown, I'm queer. And like, if they can visually see me as a person who was able to like succeed in mathematics as a form of inspiration for my future students, like hopefully that helps. If not, like, let's see where we can work together and make sure you flourish. Yes, to all of that. I'm so happy to know that you're going to be teaching young people like my own children. I have a 10-year-old who says he loves math. He doesn't like writing. He doesn't like reading. I'm like, okay, some good teacher who I know the teachers, right, that he's had um, helped him to get to that point, right? You're right. Kids don't love math all the time. So to hear when your own child says, oh, I I, I like math the best, you're like, yay, we have good teachers, right? So I'm glad you're going to be be teaching our our future generations. Uh, let's hear a little bit more about what y'all have been learning. Um, Luis, you want to talk to us? You wrote, you wrote a paper, right? A recent annual meeting proceedings chapter, which we'll drop in the show notes, um, about faculty and student perceptions of instructional serviness in gateway mathematics courses, um, about, uh, you know, at, at HSI. So tell us about it and, and what we can learn from that piece. Totally. And before I do, much gratitude to you, Dr. Garcia, and everybody at Capasa HSIs, because like you all have created a space for us to come together. So as I'm listening and engaging with my colleagues' ideas, I just wanted to throw gratitude into the space. Um, and also, um, in the spirit of also, this this work is done collectively. So we're here, right? So it's the research arm, so Dr. Ortega talked a little bit about the professional learning arm, and then the research arm is another arm, and it's interconnected to the broader TIPS project. Um, and this is a part about being able to think about some knowledge production, right? And so um, as a village, we have many folks in our research team. Uh, so, you know, we have undergraduate students, master students, and doctoral students, and faculty colleagues there. So I'm just going to say first names real quick. So Yamit, and Raven over at Sonoma, uh, Taylor, Nicolette, Magumi, 
um, Lorelli, Enrique, Rocio, Shalini, and also Martha Byrne at Sonoma State. So I want to make sure that that um, those folks are recognized because they are contributing to this work as well. Um, and so this paper, we really were trying to look at in this analysis across in gateway math instruction from faculty and students' perspectives, and we engaged in a coupling of the data. So we have perspectives from faculty members and students who were taking those faculty members' classes. So we were being, and we were trying to ask through interviews and through journaling what their conceptions of serving Latin identified students looks like for faculty. And for students, what does it mean to be served as a Latin student in mathematics, right? And so methodologically, this was important because oftentimes in research, we might hear from the faculty's perspective, but we don't know how that's landing on for students. Or we hear from the students' perspectives, but we don't hear about the faculty sense-making about why they decided to do what they did in the classroom, right? So this was an opportunity for us to look across those perspectives and we found these kind of moments of dissonance or, or resonance between their conceptions of what it means to serve or experience serving this. And the theme that we elaborate on this paper is around expansive conceptions of mathematical ability. So what does that mean? So a lot of times, both faculty and students were saying uh, an important part of being served is for faculty members to have a broad way, not a narrow way, a broad way of thinking about what it means to be mathematically competent. So oftentimes when we think about traditional markers of math ability, we think about being fast, being correct. And a lot of that increases into high stakes pressure of being able to show up as a math student in these spaces. But we also argue that in, in addition to disrupting these narrow ways of conceiving math ability, faculty members have an important responsibility to also um, acknowledge and explicitly name the experiences that Latin students are navigating as mathematical learners, so managing stereotypes, considering the fact that, that a lot of times Latin uh, community members may not have had access to high quality pre-college math teachers to be able to support them into their first year college classes. And so that's really important to couple that with having an expansive view of mathematical ability. And I love that Roni brought up becoming a bilingual math teacher because one of the insights that we have for this theme in the paper was we heard from one faculty student coupling around language. So one faculty participant, when they were making sense of what it means to serve when teaching elementary statistics or, um, or college level statistics, right? For her, she was talking a lot about how oftentimes statistical language of what that means in stats is not necessarily one-to-one -one how we use that term in everyday language. So the a notion of statistical bias means one thing in statistics. When you think about bias in the everyday terms, like if I have a racial bias or a gender bias, it's a little different. But specifically for emergent bilinguals in the classroom, that one, that important support of thinking about that translation of how you might think about it in the everyday may not necessarily be the same thing in, the, in a mathematical or in a statistics context is super important. So we had we heard from one participant who had this instructor who said, I see my faculty member or my professor being really intentional and in providing vocabulary-based support. But as an emergent bilingual, so his name is Christian, Christian says, as an emergent bilingual, I'm actually so concerned about 
talking in class? Like, what if I use the words incorrectly? So the performance of being able to communicate his understanding. So the same uncertainties that he was feeling as an emergent bilingual, and let's say some of the more social science classes like English composition were showing up in a mathematical context. So while the faculty member went as so far to know and was conscious that some of my students might be managing some language-based struggles, that only went as so far for the social experience of being an emergent bilingual Latin student in a math space of how can I really truly show up in my classroom participation if I still feel that communication is still a barrier for me. So while we have this expansive view of mathematical ability, right, that really was supportive for Christian because it was in this class that he actually began to fall in love with mathematics um, and begin to kind of see himself as not having to rush his performance, going against that speed notion of, of valuing math ability. It only went as so far in terms of his access as a Latin student to be able to participate in the classroom. So we have more insights in that paper. That's just one nugget to give you a sense of what we had found in that analysis. Oh, and one last thing. We mm -hmm. do, you know, part of, um, I'm thinking about the audience for Kipasa HSIs around, we learn about these things and then what about practice? So what do we do next week to be able to show up, right? Mm -hmm. So I think a really important practice is for faculty members, maybe they have certain norms around how they create groups or call on students in a varied way. But if faculty members, math faculty, actually name and are transparent behind why they do those behaviors, it actually signals to students in the classroom that that faculty member is very much race conscious or socially conscious mm -hmm. about those practices offering equitable opportunities to, to participate or receive support. So as you're a faculty member at an HSI who's thinking about how can I signal that I'm actually doing this from a race conscious way, even just being transparent about your pedagogy can go a long way because it signals to students like this person understands or sees what I might be managing from a racialized perspective in mathematics. Um, and we've been doing, this is the research arm, but we do a lot of translational work. So we've presented this at the math colloquium at Sonoma State mm -hmm. to get this into the, the minds and thinking about our colleagues at Sonoma and the math and stats departments. We have annual advisory board meetings where we have upper level administrators at Sonoma State who are thinking about this from a campus level experience. So the fact that we're actually doing this research, it's not just living over there. We also try to do a lot of translational work to get this into the minds and the hands of the people who are enacting change um, every on an everyday basis. Thank you all for clarifying. And thank you for like giving us both the research and the practice arms, right? Like we do need both, right? And that's that research informs practice, practice informs research. Like they should absolutely be like that. Omaira, do you want to share um, any last tips on implementing serviness in STEM um, in practice? Yes, and this is from my experience with this uh, this grant, the TIPS grant. Um, there are four co-PIs. Um, it's myself and Dr. Leva who are here today, but also Dr. Brigitte Lama and Dr. Ben Ford. And uh, it's important to collaborate with folks who are entrenched in the institution where you're trying to make these huge changes, um, these huge structural changes. So for instance, I've been at Sonoma State for five years. 
And, uh, you know, Dr. Leva is at Vanderbilt, an, an outside institution external to us. But Dr. Ford and Dr. Lama have been at Sonoma State for like 50 years between the both of them. And they um, are just so entrenched in the university. They have that kind of pull where you could just ask someone to do something. And they're like, sure, it, it was Ben, it was Brigitte. So I think it's important to collaborate and connect with some key players get some early adopters who have a lot of social capital at the institution. Um, I will say also our math department was pretty primed for this work. We've done little um, DEI efforts in the past. And even myself being hired in the department was the result of um, them bringing in some outside external evaluators to evaluate the department. And so um, I think that those Two things, just sort of priming the department with or priming yourself with uh, priming your institution with some smaller um, activities and then also getting some key stakeholders to to join and become part of the movement from the beginning uh, so that it will be easier to convince others to join. Uh, those are two tips for successful implementation. I will say some things that are preventing and hindering this implementation are really um, you know, folks mindset, you know, it's just, it's, it's the way it's always been. This is, this is how, you know, how I learned. And so just these old notions, these old ways of being that sometimes people aren't even aware that they are holding in themselves. Those have been the biggest hindrances to, you know, spreading the good word of tips and spreading the word of servingness even. And, um, you know, every day it, I learn something new about the folks that I'm working with at my institution. Um, but it's really about talking to folks, building those relationships and, you know, slowly but surely you know, changing people's minds, changing people's hearts. And so it is just about putting in that work. Yes. Thank you for adding that. What's hindering it? Because that is there's, there's a lot of hindering of serving us. Right. We're trying really hard, but some things can really prevent it. So final question, nobody gets out of the pod without answering. Y'all got all got to answer your final thoughts on que pasa, HSIs. Ronima, do you want to start? Yeah, I just want to say, I just love that last part where you said, how can we change heart minds? How can we change hearts? I felt like that was like, it hit me in the core. Oh, Ortega. So um, que pasa, HSIs. Um, honestly, like, honestly, what what's happening? Like, Apart from this research, ¿qué más estamos haciendo en Sonoma State? Like, aparte de, like, the financial aid, like, how else are we supporting, um, you know? Because um, I have some classmates, their main language is English. So I'm also curious, like, um, Ortega mentioning how we don't have a lot of Spanish resources. I'm just like, damn, like. Even in the work that I was doing, I don't remember seeing a lot of bilingual resources being offered. So how how are we going to do that? How are we implementing that sort type of serviness into our institution? And how how else are we going to continue amplifying and so celebrating Hispanic? Well, I also don't like the word Hispanic, but like Latin students, that's a whole different topic. But like, yeah, Latin students at um, Sonoma State, um, especially uh, with the discrepancies of Hispanic or Latin enrolling and Latin graduating um, students. Um, like, one thing I did want to add is that at uh, commencement, it was mentioned that this class of 
this graduating class in um, the School of Science and Tech was the most diverse class. And I really hope it's not the last most diverse class. Thank you. Luis, ¿qué pasa, HSI? All right. Before I answer this really quick, um, I think one of the things that's really powerful that I want to resonate with what Dr. Ortega was mentioning before was about the um, building coalitions on campus and also the way that we have built coalitions even among ourselves in this project. So in the research team, we have educational researchers, but we also have trained mathematicians who are engaging in qualitative research. So we're really kind of deconstructing these this siloing that's happening and building a true coalition of working alongside um, faculty who are in math departments to be able to actualize this change. So I wanted to kind of say that because, you know, we've been working with, um, you know, Dr. Byrne and Dr. Ford in that space of really beginning to think about um, what does this look like when we actually transcend the silos um, of the academy. Um, so for que pasa HSIs, I think I want to say uh, for HSIs, como estamos sirviendo a las personas que son latine, pero de diferentes eh, intersecciones de, de identidades, como mm -hmm. de género, de lenguaje, eh, de diferentes diferencias, ¿no? Y pero también, ¿cómo estamos haciendo eso en, en HSIs, pero no solo en, en, en lo que nosotros consideramos como STEM, eh, pero las diferencias entre diferentes ramas de STEM? ¿Cómo se parece eso cuando lo estamos haciendo a, con atención a las intersecciones de identidad en ma las matemáticas, en las ciencias? Porque Cada rama tiene su propia cultura y su propia manera de en, en enseñar y tenemos que empezar a, a, a considerar cómo esas diferencias de, de, en, la, en los estudiantes que estamos sirviendo los va a ayudar a, a tener experiencias que en sí um, los apoyan y en sí los están sirviendo, pero de una manera bien fuerte. Thank you for that. I would summarize, but that's a lot. Basically, what y'all going to do different? <laughs> do something different <laughs> with intersectional and don't yes with intersectional STEM. identities <laughs> right and stem is not a monolith we have so much <laughs> in stem absolutely i love it dr ortega que pasa hsis wow i i follow, i gotta go last after these people um i think I'm just very excited to connect with more HSIs. I, I'm, you know, I want to thank you so much for providing this platform for us to hear from each other and hear what we're each doing so that we can build our network and build our community even more strong. And, you know, like HSI STEM as well, another networking uh, platform for HSIs to talk to each other and share what's working and what's not. Like, I want to talk to you. Email me. That's That's what's up. And that is what's up with math, math serviness. Thank y'all for being here today. It's been a very thought-provoking show and I'm excited to share it with the listeners. 